All right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Kalar. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. He did a recent survey, as they are wont to do, they, whoever they is, did a survey asking Americans just how do you feel generally about the state of things, the state of the world, the state of your life, the state of the country, what have you. And, and here's a, a direct quote from that survey. One word can describe how Americans are feeling about the way things are going. Bad. All right, that was the answer. Across 29 different measurements, just 38% of Americans say they are satisfied. You know, not too surprising as a culture, we've had, never had so many venues, opportunities, options to pursue happiness, to pursue shalom, peace, satisfaction, but yet, have we ever been so unhappy? Now, please understand, I'm not hating on happiness. As we've seen from the Sermon on the Mount, happiness, joy, flourishing um, is a God-given desire. It is a God-given impulse. What Jesus is constantly returning our focus and attention to here in the sermon is where do we find it? And you'll recall, Jesus begins this most famous discourse ever delivered, this Sermon on the Mount. He, he begins it with an invitation. And he says, do you want to be happy? Who doesn't? Who, do you want to flourish? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be content? Do you want to be satisfied? Then let me show you the way, the way of the kingdom. And if you could sort of boil everything down to one word in the Sermon on the Mount in terms of the path to joy, the path to happiness, it would be this word, righteousness. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you've been with us, you know that righteousness is no peripheral term in this sermon. You throw a rock at this sermon. Don't try this at home. If you throw a rock at this sermon, you will hit righteousness somewhere. Remember that very provocative verse Jesus says at the beginning of the sermon. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That's why you're not happy. And, and you, you should have known, this would have been the earth-shattering kaboom. This would have been a shot across the bow. This was a stunning statement by Jesus because, after all, who were the most righteous? They were the Pharisees. They were the people who prayed and fasted and gave money, and they were these paragons of, of virtue. And, and this would have been a shocking thing, but... but what Jesus is getting at here with this word righteous, and the word righteous, by the way, it, it, it's interpreted teleos. It literally means to be a wholehearted person. It means to be the same on the inside as you are on the outside. There is a consistency, a constancy. The righteous person is not the perfect person. The righteous person is not someone who doesn't sin. In fact, a righteous person can fall into serious sin, right? Um, uh, David, isn't this interesting? God calls David a righteous man, a man after his own heart. And we may say, how is that possible, Pastor Paul? He committed adultery and he actually killed someone, not just in their hearts, but he actually killed them. 
and then he deceived everyone about it, and he had his heart hardened. But yet, how, how could this be? And what Jesus means by this word righteous or teleos or wholeheartedness simply means that we are not segmented, bifurcated people. That, that we are whole people, that, that who we are here is who we are there. That who we are at work and at home and with our kids and with our friends, that there is a consistency to this. And that when we aren't consistent, we're not content. When, when, when we're not consistent like David, we come under God's conviction. When we're not content, we, when this is not the case, we say, God, this is not the way things should be. I, I, I run to you. I cling to you. I repent before you. I'm asking that you would weave these discongruent parts of me together. And I won't rest until that happens. That, that's the righteous person. The righteous person, in essence, is the one who repents, who knows they need Jesus, is not content with a bifurcated state of the self. That's what a Christian is. The question is, how do we live there? Don't, don't you want to live there? Don't you want to be that person who's wholly content in the Lord? That whether there's suffering or sorrow or sadness or deep struggle, that your soul is happy in God. And that is where Jesus is going to turn his attention to next in this sermon. It's where we're going to spend the next several weeks. And so we're, sort of, we're, we're, we're kicking this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount off by entitling this the teleos trajectory, which I know sounds very Star Trekian for a Mother's Day. I totally get that. But the teleos trajectory, and what we're going to do, I'm going to read verses, uh, chapter 6, 1 through 18. Um, and this is going to be the, the passage of Scripture we camp out on for the next month or so. But I'm going to read the whole thing today to sort of introduce us to it. And, and if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. So Jesus is speaking to a people who want to be happy, who want to be wholehearted. And this is what he says. Beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, we, as your people, long to be wholehearted. We, we want to be righteous. We want to walk blamelessly before you. Not perfectly, not, not entirely without sin, Lord. We know that's not possible in this life. But we want to be people who aren't content unless we are walking after you. And Lord, you show us a path. And I pray over this next month particularly, as we head into the summer season, that you will give us some real tools to latch onto, some things that we can incorporate and apply into our lives today that will draw us closer to you, Lord. That's what we're asking now, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your seats. The first thing I want to do is just sort of give you a flyover of Matthew 6 and tell you how we are going to study this and teach through it over the course of the next month. Jesus essentially to this response of how do we get there, Pastor Paul? How do we get towards righteousness? And please understand something. We're not talking about the alien righteousness of Christ, the Christ, the, the righteousness that, that is the only means by which you will be accepted and declared, and declared not guilty by God. That's an alien righteousness. It's outside of ourselves. It's given wholly as a gift by virtue of the, of the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's not the kind of righteousness we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of righteousness that honors God, where we live at peace in our souls and peace with him and communion with him and communion with others. And Jesus wants to lay out three disciplines or spiritual practices to help us in that endeavor. And the three disciplines, as you can see, we've read them already, are giving or generosity, praying, and then fasting. And Jesus says these are the foundation of the righteous life. Now, when Jesus comes to prayer, he's going to take a little excursus. He's going to give an expanded teaching on prayer um, which we, of course, call the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to spend a separate amount of time on that because I think it's so important and so critical. But the, today what we want to do, I want to give you an overview of all three of these disciplines. We're going to be about at 40,000 feet. One of the things Matthew does is, is that he, he records things in the Sermon on the Mount that he returns to later in his gospel. So there's going to be a whole section on prayer, a whole section on fasting, a whole section on, on giving. And so, so we'll take the deep dive then. But today, I just want to help us understand how do we fit these things together? How are we to think about spiritual disciplines in the context of our lives? What are they meant to do? How are they meant to serve us? And so we're going to look at two, two things particularly. One, we're going to look at the disciplines as a measure of righteousness 
And number two, as a means of growing in righteousness. So a measure of righteousness, a means for growing in righteousness. So look at verse one under that first point, And you could say in a lot of ways, this verse is the headliner verse over everything that comes after it in this section. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It's always a big deal when Jesus gathers a room of his followers, believers, people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be religious like we are, and he begins with a warning. Right? And so, so this word beware, it literally means pay attention, wake, wake up, be cautious, tread carefully, because it's very possible to be so close to God, quote unquote, externally, but yet be so far from him in our hearts. And so Jesus is going to tell us something very specifically about the how and why of practicing spiritual disciplines. And his first order of business is to say, this is serious business, so serious that how you approach these things and how you practice them can indicate something about their, about your heart. It, can, it, it will say something, not just if you're doing them, but how you're doing them will, will, will tell you something about your position in the kingdom of God. Now, remember this, the, the backdrop to all this, of course, are the blasted Pharisees, right? The, the Pharisees, they, of course, did all of these things. They gave, they prayed, they fasted. But the problem was not that they didn't practice acts of righteousness. It's just that they did them for all the wrong reasons. Okay, look back at the text. I want to just draw your attention. and You're hopefully going to see a theme here. Look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. You see the bright, flashing, neon spiritual sign? You know, anytime Jesus says something once, that's, that's important because Jesus says it. Sometimes Jesus will say, truly, truly, right? That means, he, you know, d d double the emphasis, but anytime Jesus says something three times, that means this is serious business. What was at the center of the Pharisees' spirituality? I want you to think about that for a second. In their giving, in their praying, in their fasting, Jesus wants us to be aware of the fact that what the Pharisees were doing was not placing God at the center of their spiritual disciplines. They were placing themselves at the center of their spiritual disciplines. They were doing them publicly, provocatively oftentimes, ostentationally, because they wanted people to like them. They did it because of their, of their reputations, their stature, and their standing. 
They love to sit in the best places. They love to walk around and be recognized as religious people and spiritual people. They love the deference. They, they love their influence. They love being given a seat at the most honored of, of tables. They were doing external acts of righteousness for all the wrong reasons. A lot of times, you've heard me say this, we think that the, the problem with the Pharisees is that they took the law too seriously. It's exactly the opposite. The problem with the Pharisees, they didn't take the law seriously enough. It was for them about themselves. And God says, this is about me. Now, interesting, the, the, we try to think, well, well Pastor Paul, what, what's a cultural equivalent for us? And I think being here from the South, we, we can all identify with this idea of going to church, right? Going to church, Pastor Paul, that's what respectable people do, especially on Mother's Day, right? And if you're not here, never mind, I was going to take a shot. But, but, but going to church is what respectable people do. Pastor Paul, this is, this is where I meet people. This is where I network. This is where I get my cup of coffee and we talk about what's going on in the community, in the political world. Pastor Paul, this is, this, it's important for me to be seen as a pillar of community. People have to trust me. When they ask me at that board meeting um, what I'm involved in, I need to be able to tell them I go to church, right? Preferably a big one that's on a main street. You know, all of that sort of stuff, right? What happens when we, when we take that sort of posture? And it's so easy to do. We're placing ourselves at the center of our religious worship, aren't we? We're making it something fundamentally about us. Jesus, in these disciplines, if nothing else, is pointing us to the fact that they are meant to take us into a deeper place in communion with God. And the way that he wants to emphasize this is he says, if we're doing the right things for all the wrong reasons, he says, there will be no reward for you. Now, that should take us up short a little bit, right? And say, okay, what, what, wait a minute. What, what is Jesus saying here? What, what does that mean there'll be no reward? Now, I want to take us back to a discussion we had about rewards earlier in the sermon and take us back to Matthew 5, 19 through 20 for a second, okay? So let me read the passage and let, let's try to understand this a little bit. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're going to get to heaven? There's going to be sort of this spiritual caste system, some of you are going to be scrubbing toilets and others of us are going to be sleeping on beds of gold. Is that what, do we even go to the bathroom in heaven? You, you get what I'm saying, right? I mean, is, 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 there like a, is there like multiple tiers of spirituality in heaven? Is there like the really awesome, amazing, incredible Christians? And then sort of the barely got in by the skin of their teeth Christians. Is, is, is that what Jesus is saying here? And, we, and remember from our conversation, we said, no, that's not what he's saying saying that, there, that you have reward in heaven and that you don't have reward in heaven are the same things as saying you are either part of the kingdom or you are not. You see, when we get to heaven, the reward is God himself. You see, that is the reward. When, when, when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my everlasting joy, how 
How long do you think those words will echo in your soul? For all eternity. Jesus might simply tell them to you one time, okay? And, and you can imagine just the idea that for all eternity I have an unhindered fellowship with the God of the universe who loves me. This, in fact, is the reward. Now, what it also points us to is that every one of us in this room and in the world has a default motivational system. At its very core, there's something that drives every human being. And for the Christian, that thing is the glory of God. That doesn't mean that we can't sin or that we can't even fall into serious sin. It just means that if you're a believer and when you sin, there is that, like David, that heartfelt desire to make things right, to repent, to change. You're not okay with the status quo. A non-Christian, on the other hand, regardless if they go to church, if they're external in their righteousness, or they practice all the disciplines, they are fundamentally those who are oriented to themselves. That is their bottom line motivational system. And what Jesus is saying here, and this is really stark, He's saying, if your deepest, most fundamental motivational system is to receive the pleasure, the praise, and the glory from the world, here's what Jesus says, you can have it. You can have it. You see, it is really true that in an external sense in this world, the wicked will flourish. The selfish will win. Those, Those who want to capture this life and everything in it for their own glory so that other people will praise them and build monuments to them and statues to them and that they will remember your name. Jesus says, you, you, you actually can have that. And we know that the, hist- the history books are littered with those sorts of stories and people. This is why Jesus says, those people who fundamentally, that their deepest heart is to live for themselves, to glorify themselves, They've received their reward in full. That's what he means. But what Jesus says you can't have is you can't have both. Your deepest longing cannot be for yourself and still play religious games and in Jesus' kingdom be called righteous. It's not that your righteousness and your spiritual discipline save you. That's not the point. The point is that righteousness, wholeheartedness, the disciplines, they flow out of a life and a heart that have been transformed by the grace of God. And so Jesus says how we approach these things, how we practice these things, how we conduct our spiritual and religious lives will reveal something about the nature of our hearts. And let me just try to put a little finer point on this before we leave this particular point. Church, if you are claiming to know Christ this morning, if you're attaching yourself to his name, his identity, his church, God loves you way, way too much than to simply let you go through the motions. Our God is a jealous God. He wants all of you. He wants wants your whole person. 
He doesn't just want your religious acts of observance. He wants your heart. He wants your stewardship, your resources, your family, your vocation, your life, your hobbies, your interests. He says, all of this belongs to me. But when you practice your righteousness and your base motivational system is simply to get what you can in the world's eyes, Jesus says, you can have it, but you can't have me, right? No one can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. God loves you too much to let you go through the motions. This is why when we preach words like this of warning where Jesus says, beware. And if there is an activation in your heart this morning, don't, don't, don't shut that down. Listen, don't harden your heart. But like David said, yes, Pastor, I'm the man, I'm the woman, I'm the student, I'm the child. That's, that's me, and I don't want it to be me. How can I walk in a more faithful way? And that's where we're going to dig into under the second point, the means to righteousness. Not the means to save yourself through your righteousness, but the means to be more of a wholehearted person. Right Now, as we dig into these things, and I kind of give us a flyover of these three disciplines, I don't want to be a hypocrite, which is it's important for me to tell you something up front. I am not entering this discussion and this teaching um, from a place of real strength in these areas for this season. I, I just want to be honest, I, I have, it, it's been... I don't, it's been an incredibly busy season. I know we all say we're busy. I'm going to say something about that in a minute. But particularly this time of year with, with budget and staffing and leadership ministry, leadership meetings and ministry planning. And, and I have just, I have not been cultivating the private places before God as I should. In fact, the more stuff that has come down the pike for me, my resolve has been get her done right? Hand a plow. Let's keep your head moving forward. Keep your legs moving forward. We got to get through this and get these things done. And I can just simply tell you that's not good for my soul. And so I come at this not from a position of master, but a position of learner and student um, as we all are. Now, if that's you in any shape, form, or fashion, I want to try to reframe the nature of our lives and busyness to what Jesus is talking about here. You see, busyness, we oftentimes see as a distraction or an obstacle to these disciplines in following God, when in reality, God intends for them to be an invitation. You see, when, when life begins to cave in and you are overwhelmed with family and children and school and work and money and all the things that we become overwhelmed with, our human fleshly instinct is to say, I have just got to buckle down. I've got to grab hold. I've got to, I've got to keep my eyes focused forward. When it's at that very time that God would have your busyness drive you to him. That, that, that you would see your busyness not as an obstacle, but 
as an invitation. An invitation to turn to God in prayer. An invitation to get outside of ourselves and to live generously towards others. An invitation to not gorge ourselves on the things of the world, but to distance and abstain ourselves from them for the good of our soul. So if you find yourself where I find myself, frankly, this season, it's not to condemn you, but it is to help reframe this issue for you. Because who in the world doesn't say, that, doesn't say they're not busy, right? But every time you feel that busyness, you feel that burden, you feel life sort of crashing in on you, reframe that to say, what is God inviting me into right now? I know what he's not inviting me into, and that is to put myself at the center of my life, myself at the center of my spirituality. So with that say, let, let me make three observations about these particular disciplines, knowing that we're going to be circling back around to them in the coming days. Okay, first, let me address the issue of public versus private. All throughout here, you've seen this, right? Jesus says, don't do these things in this way publicly, do do them in private before your heavenly father. Jesus, let me say this, is, is I think very clearly not saying that we don't practice these disciplines in public at all. Okay, You look throughout the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments people give publicly. They pray publicly. They oftentimes fast publicly. They're, we are gathering here, what, publicly to worship. Jesus' point here is not that we don't do external acts of worship externally. But what he's warning us against is to do them in a way to be seen by other people. So in other words, before worship of any kind or disciplines of any time can be public, they have to be personal. That's the point. Public, I mean, acts of worship are certainly more than personal, but Christian, please understand this, they are never less than. Jesus' driving point here is that we will never rise above the personal dimension of our spiritual disciplines with God. In other words, for example, if you find that the only time that you are praying, okay, is with your small group or around the dinner table or in your men's and women's Bible study. The point is, don't stop doing those things. The point is, start praying privately, lest you get into a point in your life where all the prayer that you're doing sort of publicly becomes just a, a band-aid. It becomes, it becomes a gloss over what's really going on in your heart. That's what Jesus is warning us about. And so when we feel that sense of like, I'm doing everything sort of outwardly, see this as an invitation from Jesus to go to that private Place, which brings us to our second point. And here, here, here this is. Who we are in secret is who we truly are in relationship to God. Who we are in secret 
And you heard this when you were a kid. Your character is defined by who you are when no one is looking, right? Guys, that's so fundamentally true. But we are no more or no less than who we are in the secret places with God. I can't remember who said this, but I stole it from somewhere. This is kind of a, a, a mashup of quotes, but here it is fundamentally. We are no more and no less than who we are in prayer before God. What Jesus is emphasizing in this idea of the secret place is that religious exercise, spiritual disciplines, whether it's public, private, it can't be merely transactional. If it's transactional, that reveals something about our heart. Fundamentally, the disciplines are meant to be transformational. They are meant to place God before us, which brings us to my third observation. If you look down, I want you to notice how many times Jesus, in relationship to the disciplines, doesn't use the word if, okay, like, like, like we would. So verse 2, what's the postmodern spiritual not religious version of this verse, you know, thus, if you give to the needy, right? Or verse five, if you pray, if you just happen to pray, to get around to praying, or, or if you fast, no, no, Jesus, even among a group of self-righteous Pharisees, looks out and knows and assumes all of them are doing these things. Praying, fasting, giving, they are not non-negotiable. Now, they were doing them with the wrong heart, yes. But for us, we might need to consider, do we look at the spiritual disciplines as really nice add-ons that we want to pursue if we want to be a really spiritual person? Or, 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 or these are sort of like multiple choice items if these are things I happen to get around to versus seeing that at the very heart of the disciplines is Jesus Christ himself. I want to read Matthew 19 for a second. This is, this is the story on fasting. Don't worry, this is not a sermon within a sermon. I just want to make a couple of observations about fasting that I think is true for all the other disciplines. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, why did people in the Old Testament fast? We see from the Old Testament they fasted individually, they fasted privately, they also fasted publicly and corporately. And invariably, they would do this when they were seeking God. When they were coming before him, they were confessing their sins. They were asking for his help, his presence, his favor, his rescue. And so they would set aside times that were normally devoted to eating and drinking, and they instead would pray. They instead would seek God. They would call out to him. They would gather together. And apparently, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were continuing that Old Testament tradition. But not so with Jesus and the disciples, interestingly enough. And this caught everyone's attention. And they send some emissaries to Jesus and say, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? 
And Jesus gives a very interesting response. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. Now, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, the people were fasting, and part of what they were crying out to God for was rescue. They were crying out for a Messiah king who would come and make things right. And so here's what Jesus is saying. You've been calling out, crying out for the Messiah king, and guess what? He's here. I, 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 am, I am him. I am he. And so you don't need to fast anymore because I'm with you. There's no need to ask for the king to be with you when the king is here. I am the fulfillment of everything that you have been seeking. You're praying, you're giving, you're fasting. I'm the fulfillment of all of it. But yet, we know this, Jesus says, I'm going away. And guess what? When I do, you can start fasting again. You can start fasting again for me, calling out for my presence, calling out for my power, calling out for me to work in your lives. But yet, this is, this is what's amazing about being a new covenant believer, our fasting and our giving and our praying are all fundamentally different this side of the cross. You see, then in the Old Testament, people were fasting, giving, praying in the hope of what God would do. But now we fast and give and pray in the certainty of what God has done. Jesus has come. He has conquered sin and death. He has made a deposit in our hearts of himself, his Holy Spirit. And when we are fasting and giving and praying, we're not simply saying, God, in an abstract way, give us your presence. We're saying, God, you, we already have your presence. Your Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. Now, make it more real. Open the eyes of my heart. Open, give me a, a, a sort of a, a, a pathway to knowing you deeper, to knowing you more intimately, to knowing you in the secret place. Jesus says, this is how I will commune with you. This is how I will make myself known to you. This is how you will taste and see that I am good. And so, if you're like me, maybe this season, you're feeling busy and distracted, not so close to God, not so in touch with his power, his presence, his spirit. It's not complicated. So many times we make Christianity so complicated, right? It's like Jesus, the user term of the 80s, would look at us and say, duh, right? You, here I am. Here I am. So when you pray, when you fast, when you give, this is my opportunity to give you more of myself. That's the same is true for the table, by the way. You realize the table is a, is, is a gift of God's grace to us. It's a discipline we do. And nowhere is it easier, right, than to come to a table and get food and drink and celebration of the Lord's Supper and just to be going through the externals. 
But Jesus says, every time you come, I'm giving you the opportunity to commune with me. I'm giving you the opportunity to remember that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm here to remind you of what I've done for you. And we do this with the expectancy that one day Jesus will return and he'll finish what he started. This is why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We will do this, when you do this, you will be proclaiming my death until I come again. So we come forward this morning, folks, as expectant believers, hopeful believers, anticipating believers, and believers who have been seeking with all their hearts to be wholeheartedly righteous before God, knowing that that is the only path to joy and pleasure and happiness is in his presence. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads, prepare your hearts to come to the table. And as you do that, I'm going to invite our elders to come up, prepare to serve our elements.